God, you have spoken. You are not silent. Would you be pleased to give us ears to hear? Convict the wayward, comfort the weary, spur on the faithful. Only you can do these things in a meaningful way. And we plead with you that you would for the glory of Christ in us, among us, and through us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, what do you get excited about? What do you eagerly look forward to? Kids, since you're with us this this morning, I wonder what you get excited about. Uh, My guess is you often get excited about your birthday. Uh, Maybe you're getting excited about Christmas. Uh, Maybe it's that big sports game that you're going to play in or that concert that you're going to see. Maybe it's that piano or that musical recital that you're a part of. What do you get excited about? Adults, how about you? Uh, What do you get excited about? The next vacation? That hopeful job promotion, maybe for some of you, it's watching that favorite sports team. You're too old to play anymore, but you can watch. A new house, what thrills your soul? Well, as you think about that, let me ask you another question. What captures the attention and the affections of God? What thrills the host of heaven? What causes them to rejoice? Well, that's what we're going to consider this Advent season. We're starting a bit early. We're going to end a bit late. And we're going to go six weeks. And we're going to re-examine some of these precious gifts given to us in Christ. These gifts are dear to God. They're what are most precious to God for his glory and our joy. And this morning, we're going to look at the gift of salvation. The gift of salvation. And just so we're all on the same page, right? So, so we're not using the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. When I say salvation, here's what I mean. Being brought back into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Right? So that the Bible teaches all of us have rebelled against God. And apart from Jesus, we're cut off from God and all that is good forever. But in God's loving kindness, he sent his son Jesus to do everything necessary to rescue, to redeem, to bring us back into relationship with God. That's what I mean when I'm talking about the gift of salvation. And this is one of the very things that thrills the heart of God. The host of heaven rejoices over the gift of salvation. We read about this in Luke chapter 2. The angel said to them, the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. And guess what happens? Verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The Savior is born, salvation is coming, and angels break out in song. How we read the same thing in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Right? So the owner tells his neighbors, I've, I lost my sheep, but rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And Jesus comments, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The woman finds her lost coin and she says, Rejoice with me. I have found the coin that I had lost. 
Jesus comments, just so. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When a sinner repents and trusts in Christ, heaven breaks out in song and joy. And right now in heaven, you know what's happening? Revelation 5 tells us. The angels around the throne singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Heaven never gets bored considering the wonder of the Savior and the beauty of salvation. Do you? Do you get bored thinking about Christ and the gift of his salvation? It's like that Christmas gift you were longing for and then you got and six days later. It's lost its luster. For my non-Christian friends, maybe you've heard this talk that Jesus is Savior. Christmas is about his birth. There's this thing called salvation. And it's never had any luster for you to begin with. You're like, what's the big deal? So for my Christian brothers and sisters and my non-Christian friends, it's going to serve us all well to think about this gift of salvation. And to do that, we're going to do something very dangerous, and that is look at one of the most well-known verses in all the Bible. A well-known verse can become like Charlie Brown's teacher. That's all you hear. Turn your Bibles, John 3.16, page 888 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. And this is going to be the focus of our time this morning. And I encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open. And so we're going to read this verse all together. Kids, I want you to join us. So if you need to, look on your mommy or daddy's Bible. And we're all going to read John 3.16 together. Ready? Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son... That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Beloved, this is the word of God. Amen. Here's the main point. Rejoice in your salvation. That's the entire point and application of what I'm going to say over the next few minutes. I could also say rejoice in our salvation. Because though our Christian faith is personal and it is not private, we we have brothers and sisters, a heavenly father, we're part of a family, so it's our salvation. And for my non-Christian friends, the call for you is to receive God's offer of salvation. So rejoice in salvation or receive salvation, and to help us do that, I'm going to give you six, yes, six, six points out of one verse, six points to rejoice in your salvation. First, because it's initiated by God. Second, because it's motivated by the love of God. Third, because it's given as a gift from God. Fourth, because it's purchased by the Son of God. Fifth, because it's received by faith in God. And sixth, it brings you into eternal fellowship with God. Let's look at each of those. Rejoice in your salvation because it's initiated by God. Look again at John 3.16. For God. Okay, let's stop right there. For God, two single-syllable words of vast importance. The subject of John 3.16 is God. God is the subject of the entire Bible. 
God initiates salvation. It's his plan. It's his prerogative. Salvation starts with the sovereign action of God, and it's always been this way. If we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, we have Adam and Eve, and they doubt God's goodness. They deny his word, and in shame and guilt, they hide from God. And what does God do? What does he say? Adam? What's he say? Adam? Where are you? Now, does God not know where Adam is? No, God knows all things. He knows where Adam is. And so when God says, Adam, where are you? He's not looking for information. He's given an invitation. He's initiating. Adam and Eve are hiding, but God seeks and he finds. And God initiates salvation. We saw the same thing in our, buddy of, our, our study of uh, 1 Thessalonians. Right? We started in chapter 1 back in September. And we read, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Our salvation is, was, and always will be the initiation of God. God acts first. He is the author and the finisher of our salvation. So rejoice, beloved, that God saw you, God pursued you, not on your best of days, but when you were the worst. Rejoice in your salvation that God not only sought you, he found you. As the old hymn goes, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm, I was blind, but now I, you were lost, beloved. God found you. You were blind, beloved. And God gave you sight that you might see and savor Jesus. Your salvation begins with these two wonderful and weighty words for God. Don't let that wonder get lost on you. If you think you've messed up too much, no hope because of what's been done to you, that you're too broken and bruised, too dirty and unclean, there's no hope for you. Here's what I tell you, friend. Salvation does not begin with but I. It begins with for God. Yes, your iniquities might be great. Yes, your past is probably filled with injustices against you. But there's nothing stronger than the words for God. God initiates. My non-Christian friends, in this moment, if you feel any sorrow for your sin, if there's any hunger for holiness, if there's any inkling of Christ and his loveliness being awakened in your soul, know that's the initiating grace of God. Don't ignore it. Receive it. Receive the offer of salvation for God. Without God's initiation, there would be no salvation. But we must ask, what is his motivation? Was it because God is so impressed with our religious duties and moral behavior? Was it because our love for God was so great that he was compelled to love us back? Was it because we're awesome, just crushing it all the time, Rarely messing up, and he's so impressed with us, he's like, Man, I gotta get in with those people. I, I gotta have a relationship with them. No, beloved. The motivation for God's initiation isn't found in us, it's found in him. John three sixteen again, look at it. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. 
Rejoice, beloved, that your salvation is motivated by the free, gracious, lavish love of God. God's love is not prompted by our goodness. It flows from his essence. It's who he is. The same guy who wrote John the Gospel also wrote a book in your Bible called 1 John. And in chapter 4 of that letter, he wrote this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God, anyone who is not loved does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Love is from God. Why? Because God is love. So let's put that back into John 3.16. For God so loved the world because God is love. The source and the sum of love are found in God. It's not something external to him. Love is not something first God does, it's who he is. I, I said this very thing the last time, I think one of the last times I preached. Right? So if you think about this, what God was doing before the creation of the world. What was he doing? John tells us in the last part of his book, John 17, where he quotes Jesus, Father, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. You see that God's identity, the main thing about him is not creator. It's not ruler. Before God was creator, he was father loving his son in and through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So for all of eternity, before anything was created, father, son, and spirit, a divine community wrapped up in other-oriented, selfless, life-giving love. And together in loving agreement. They set their affection on an undeserving, wayward people doing everything necessary. The Father sending the Son, the Son willingly living and dying, the Spirit gladly indwelling. The triune God does everything necessary to redeem and rescue, to save and satisfy, to give the gift of salvation. Why? Because God is triune. And because God is triune, He loves To give good gifts. It's who he is. Here's the way of saying of old. Put this mind blowing truth. This is what separates us beloved. From any religion that claims a Unitarian God. A God of one person. That God cannot be loving in its essence. Quote the old saying. If God were just one person. He could not be intrinsically loving. Since for all of eternity. He would have nobody to love. If God were just two persons, he might be loving, but in an excluding, ungenerous way. For when two persons love each other, they become infatuated with each other and ignore everyone else. But when the love between two persons is so happy, healthy, and secure, they rejoice to share it. Just so it is with God. It is not then that God becomes loving, being triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, God is is a loving God, a God who loves to include. Do you see what this means? God saves, he gifts the gift of salvation, not because he needs something from us, but because he desires to share his goodness with us. And this means God's love is not forced, a begrudging love. If we're not careful, we can take our view of love and map it onto God. And if we're honest, We have those people, maybe you just spent some time with them at Thanksgiving, right? That weird family member or awkward friend or whatever, and you're like, I know I have to love them. But I'm not so sure I always want to love them. 
right? For you kids that maybe have brothers and sisters, and your, your mommy or daddy tells you, you need to love your brother, you need to love your sister, you're like, ah, but I don't, I don't want to, right? If we're not careful, this is how we can begin to think of God's love, that he's annoyed, that he's angry, and somehow Jesus came to do this, this manipulation tactic to where he was really nice and he came and kind of did some nice things to manipulate this guy in heaven to love us. But God in heaven is really disgruntled with us all the time. He, it's kind of like that, I, I don't, I don't want to love him, but I have to love him. And so we're, we're in this confused, like, I, I don't know what to do with this. We don't know where we stand. It's confusing. It's not really hopeful. But just look at John 3.16. Look at the order of the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What comes first? God's love. Then the sending of the son. God sending Jesus confirmation of his love, not because of his love. Or salvation flows from God's love. It is not forced by God's son. We see the same idea. Just look at 317. In your Bible, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God is not seeking an excuse to condemn. He's eagerly initiating to save because he loves. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing in your past, no sin you've committed or been committed against you, that will break God's invincible love for you. As I tell you often, God is not upset with you. He chose you and saved you. He does not need and he does not want an eraser for his book of life. He doesn't. He's not annoyed with you. He's not angry at you. He has affection for you. He's the lover of your soul. His attention for you never wanes. When you're tempted to complain, when you're tempted to doubt God's goodness, when you're tempted to question if God really sees, if he cares what you're going through, I don't want to minimize those situations, but I do want to call you to this. For God so loved. He initiated saving because he does see you. He does care for you. So much so that when you couldn't do anything, he did everything necessary to secure your eternal joy. That does not mean you will have everything that you want here on earth. I get that. That's hard. But we must have this as the foundation. Let the gift of salvation the beauty of Christ inform everything else. Beloved, rejoice that your salvation is motivated by God's love because that's who he is. His love for you is not dependent upon what you do and it's not determined by your circumstances. It's based on who he is. So as you disciple one another, as you pray for one another, as you study God's word together, remind each other of this gospel truth. That in the midst of the changing circumstances, in the midst of unmet godly desires, in the midst of struggle and hardship, brother, sister, for God so loved the world. He loves you. He loves you. Parents, remind your kids of this. There's a love in Christ that never changes or diminishes, that always provides what it promises. There's a love that doesn't demand from us, but gives to us. Remind your kid to this. This is what true love does. It gives for the good of others. And so that's what God does. He gives. 
Beloved, rejoice that your salvation is given as a gift from God. Look again at John 3.16. Read that first part together again. Let's read it. For God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. Salvation is given as a gift from God. It's not earned as a reward by us. This is different. As far as I can tell, this is different from every other idea of salvation. Everybody, as far as I can tell, is looking for salvation. I think people turn to one of three main ways. Other religions? Salvation of belonging by following today's secular creed? And salvation by self-actualization? Each of those boils down to performance. So other religions. Every other religion, as far as I know, offers their version of salvation based on doing enough good to outweigh your bad. And if you're able to do that, then you get whatever salvation they offer. But here's the problem. You never know if you've done enough good. Is it 51%? Is it 88%? Is it 73%? Is there a curve that we're graded on? If so, who's part of the curve? Is it just my family, my nation, the people that live before me, people that come after me? Like, I have no idea. So you're left confused. What about salvation by today's secular creed? Salvation comes when you believe the right things, behave the right way, say the right words in just the right way, and post the right things and words to social media so everybody knows that you're righteous. But mess up once, you're canceled. What about salvation by self-actualization? Well, all you have to do there is look inside, dig down really deep, discover who you are, and achieve that identity. But in order to achieve that identity, to be saved and secure, you actually have to demand others affirm your identity also. So your salvation is based on your own performance and the performance and acceptance of others. Do you see, beloved, that a salvation that is earned is fragile? You'll never really be secure. It leads to feeling inadequate or superior, to pride or despair. You always have to protect and promote yourself. You have to earn the approval of others while comparing yourself to them so you can be good like them or condemning them so you're not bad like them. That's exhausting. That's anxiety producing. It's less like salvation and more like a hamster on a wheel. Always running, always chasing, never catching. I would submit, that's not good news. But what if, wouldn't it be awesome if salvation wasn't based on how good we are or how well we have to perform? What if salvation was actually a gift that God gives? Wouldn't that be good news? For God so loved the world that he gave. Beloved, rejoice that your salvation is given from a gift from God. And let me encourage you with this. If it's given as a gift from God, there's nothing you can do to earn it, and there's nothing you can do to lose it. Your status before God is not dependent upon how well you behave, beloved. And your relationship with God isn't as fickle as what you feel. Our emotions go up and go down. But God's steadfast love endures forever. His affections never change. 
you don't have to spend your energy and emotional bandwidth trying to earn God's love. You simply get to enjoy it and extend it to others. You don't have to spend your energy and emotional bandwidth trying to win the acceptance and the approval of others. You get to serve them, even those who don't like you. Rejoice that your salvation isn't conditioned on your behavior. It's not based on your efforts. It's given as a gift from God. And this gift isn't just an abstract thing called salvation. It's an actual person named Jesus. For God so loved, say it together, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John moves from the abstract, for God so loved, to the historical fact, God gave his son. Rejoice, beloved, that God gave his son, his one and only son, his eternal son, to purchase your salvation. If there was any other way for God to save us, then God the Father would be mean in giving up his son. If there was any other way of salvation, the life and death of Jesus would be a complete waste. But there is no other way. The fact that God gave his only son tells us how much he loves us. And the fact that God had to give his only son tells us how bad of a situation we were in. So earlier I said, all have rebelled against God, and because of that, left to ourselves, we're cut off from God and everything that is eternally good. I get it, God's common grace, we experience some good in this world, but we're cut off from all that is eternally good. Some of us are more moral than others, I get that. But all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So I've got two daughters, they're older, but when, we were, we were young, when they were younger, we, we read a, a systematic theology called Theology. And every chapter was one theme, and it was an a, a explanation of a topic and a Bible verse and an illustration. And uh, the illustration for, for sin uh, was most memorable. I've, I've shared this story before in some of you. Uh, but the, the illustration for sin was very mem- is very, very memorable. In fact, I brought it up the other day. And I haven't read this book in, I don't know, a decade. And so, kids, you'll pay attention. The illustration for sin was this. There was a glass of pristine, clear water. And sitting on the edge of that glass was a bird. And what do you think the bird had done to the water? Bird pooped in the water. Would you drink that water? No. Why? It's just a little bit. Everything else is clean. It's just a little bit of dirt in there. The point, just a little bit ruins the whole thing. So it is with our status before God. Why? Because our rebellion against God is deeper than what we do. Our sin is not just disobedience, but disordered love. It's deep inside of us. Look down at verse 19. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, 
And people what? People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. How does John describe doing evil? Loving darkness. Sin is not just bad actions. It's misplaced affections. See, our problem is, is, is part of It's inside of us. We can't fix ourselves. We can't fix ourselves any more than a broken clock can fix itself. It requires help from the outside. From the one who made us, from the one who knows us. See, our problem with God needs a divine solution from God. And the good news is that what God requires from us, God provides for us. God sent his only son into the world. God gave his only son, his eternal son in the incarnation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. God taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. The infinite becomes incarnate. Being born of a virgin, the creator takes on the limitations of a created thing. The one who hung the stars now suspended in amniotic fluid. From throne in heaven to cradle in a manger. God gave his only son, his eternal son, to live the life we could not live. Jesus, with blood pulsing through his veins, air filling up his lungs, lived a perfect life of loving his heavenly father, sacrificially loving his neighbor, pursuing the vulnerable, caring for the poor, gentle with the weak, compassion to the hurting, calling the the sender to repentance, inviting disciples to intimate relationship, never a misplaced word or malicious thought. Never a lustful thought or sinful action. He cried when friends died and he celebrated at wedding feasts. He never used people. He only served them. God gave his son to live the truly human life we could not and did not want to live. And God gave his only son to be crucified. To die the death we should have died. And as you heard Nick pray, here we see the importance of the full humanity and the full deity of Jesus. It was only as a sinless man that he could be the substitute and reconciler of humanity. It was only as fully God, divine, that he could satisfy the demands of eternal justice. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the only one who qualifies as our all-sufficient Savior. There is no other way. Perfect justice by sending his perfect and willing son to die for our sins. And Jesus rose again, purchasing our salvation, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And one day, as we saw last week's sermon text, Jesus is returning soon to restore everything back to the way it's supposed to be. Beloved, rejoice. Your salvation is purchased by Christ who not only died but rose again and is soon returning. In order for your status before God to change, here's what would have to happen. Jesus would have to be ripped out of heaven and put back in the tomb. That's how secure your status is before God and God's love for you. If you're wondering, that's not going to happen. He rose and he said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Beloved, you're a precious child. You're a cherished son, a beloved daughter brought into God's family. Even when you don't fit into the world, when you're mocked, 
when you're dismissed, when you're canceled, when you're misrepresented, you don't have to fight for the world's approval. You have the approval and affection of God. You have your church family around you. And the best is just ahead. Rejoice that Christ purchased your salvation. My non-Christian friends, you may be wondering, okay, that, that sounds really awesome. How do I get in on that? The same way all of us do. By faith. Rejoice that salvation is received by faith. All right, let's read it again, beloved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him. Notice a couple things. Whoever. There's one way of salvation for all people, regardless of age, ethnicity, geography, culture, economic status, intelligence level, ability, gender, language, whoever. This means no one is beyond the reach of salvation in Christ. The most prideful, accomplished, rich business professional, not too far removed from salvation in Christ. The hardened criminal, not cut off from the gift of God's grace. The most left-wing radical, pushing wicked ideologies, can be saved by the atoning work of Christ. And the most right-wing, pundit, propagating self-righteous moralism can be redeemed by Christ. The most horrendous terrorist can become a trophy of God's grace. The ardent atheist, the devout follower of a man-made religion, the addict, the abuser, the self-reliant achiever can all come to see and savor Christ. Whoever really means whoever. You might think you're beyond the saving love of God, but whoever repents of their sin and trust in Christ, whoever comes and brings their brokenness to Jesus for healing, whoever can be saved. Will you come to him? Christian family, Restoration Church, let this compel you to share the wonder of salvation boldly. Realize no one is too far removed from the grace of God. That family member, that coworker, that friend, the one who seems really uninterested in Christ or is even hostile to Christ. God can gift them salvation. God can grant them repentance. Whoever really does mean whoever. And it says whoever believes. Notice that, whoever believes. English lesson for the kids, that's a verb. It's an active present tense verb. That means it's happening all the time. That means this belief, this faith, this trust is a present possession, not just a past profession. True faith endures. True faith regularly repents and turns to Christ. It doesn't rely on a decision from the past. It's motivated by desires even in the presence to trust Jesus, to want to trust Jesus, even when it's hard. Faith's not perfect. It may not always be strong, but it joins the man who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Faith is a present thing. And notice it says, believes in him. Whoever believes in him. This faith John speaks of has a specific object, Jesus. 
Not the Jesus of our own making, affirming everything about us as we are. Not the Jesus whose hope for our lives also happens to match the American dream. Not the Jesus who doesn't care what we consume on social media, how often we miss church, or how we use our time and money. Not that Jesus. This faith believes in him, the Jesus who is. The Jesus who, John says, is God in the flesh, chapter 1, verse 14. Truly God, truly human. The Jesus who John says in chapter 1, verse 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the all-sufficient Savior, Jesus. This Jesus. This Jesus who John says in chapter 20, verse 9, must rise from the dead. This Jesus who's the resurrected Lord. This Jesus. All of eternity will be divided along these lines. Those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John says that those who do not believe will perish. Those who do believe will be saved. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Go over to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John is very clear. God's word is very clear. Jesus alone deals with the problem of sin. Our perishing, verse 16, our condemnation, verse 18, and God's wrath, verse 36. That word perishing doesn't just mean physical death. It means cut off from God and all that is eternally good. Condemnation is the guilt that we have before God, which means we're due to receive the wrath of God. And he's not like an angry parent who just flies off the handle. No, this is just settled opposition to all that is sinful. God in his goodness cannot overlook any hint of rebellion because he's holy and good. Sin cannot go unpunished. And what I hope you see is that that for John, holding the, the love of God and the wrath of God, they're not opposed to one another. They're right there. We love John 3.16. How often do you see John 3.36 held up at the baseball game? But they're right there. His wrath is an expression of his love. Right? The paw of a lion is soft. But that does not mean it's not powerful. Both are true. So it is with God. His love is a consuming fire to expose sin and a comforting fortress to rescue from sin. All his actions are done in love. Because that's who he is. Right? In love, he sent his son. In love, he's laid down his life. In the flesh, sin was condemned in Christ. On the cross, Jesus exhausted the wrath of God. God settled righteous anger toward evil. Jesus took the full brunt of God's holy displeasure of all that was sin. Yet Jesus rose again for those trusting in Christ instead of perishing without God. Now there's peace with God. Instead of condemnation from God, there's communion with God. Instead of wrath, we have the wonderful gift of salvation. And I realize that in today's pluralistic, postmodern world, making this claim that Jesus is the only way of salvation isn't very popular. Right? Some might say it's arrogant to be so exclusive. Now, let me be clear. You can be arrogant and be exclusive. But just because you're exclusive does not mean you're arrogant. Because here's the thing. 
we're all exclusive. All of us. So one person might say, Jesus is the only way of salvation. Another person says, no, all religions offer salvation. Here's the one right way to think about all religions. Another person might say, there is no God. Religion offers no salvation. You only need to think like this to be saved from religion. Do you see, we're all exclusive. So the question isn't who is and isn't exclusive. The question is what is true. What makes sense of the world we live in? What provides the hope for the world we want? See, Christianity is not only true, it's beautiful. It's good. If you want to talk more about that, come find me after service, ask the person who brought you. Or if you don't want to talk to anybody, go downstairs to our bookstall and find the book Reason for God. And just take it and read it. For my Christian brothers and sisters, rejoice that your salvation is a gift received by faith. Let this liberate you from any pride, self-righteous comparison, thinking you have to be better than others. Received by grace through faith. And let this liberate you from the terror of realizing you can't win God's approval. You don't have to. Rest. Rejoice. Receive Christ by faith day after day. He's enough to save and to satisfy forever because he brings us into eternal fellowship with God. Beloved, rejoice that in your salvation you have eternal fellowship with God. One last time, let's read it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus wants us to know not just what we've been saved from, but who we've been saved to. That's that idea of eternal life. We see this in John 17, later on in the, the gospel. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is knowing the one true triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the knowledge of here to know is not just intellectual, factual knowledge, like 2 plus 2 equals... Right? 2 plus 2 equals... That's true, but it's not very exciting, is it? Like, yeah, it equals 4. That's not what John's talking about. John's talking about an intimate knowledge, the way a husband might love his wife, or the way lifelong friends might know and share a deep, mutual joy anchored in a depth and texture of robust relationship. That's what's happening here. This relationship. See, the good news isn't that your sins are forgiven. The good news isn't that you get to go to heaven. The good news, you get God. That's the good news. You get God because God saved you. This is the good news. See, eternal life is not reduced to the amount of years we live. We think about heaven, and we just think, that's a really long time sitting in diapers on clouds playing harps. That's really boring. That's not the way the Bible speaks about heaven. 
the way Bible speaks about heaven is, is everything in this world, any hint of goodness that you enjoy, amplify it beyond imagination. Any bad that you experience, gone forever. In the presence of the one true God with all his people completely redeemed and glorified, enjoying life that was always meant to be, that's eternal life. Not just in the quantity of years, but the quality of our life. That's what John is talking about. And here's the beautiful thing. Look what Jesus says. John says we, we have eternal life. He does not say we will have eternal life. So we get to experience this, this communion with God and this relationship with each other now. We have communion with God. His very spirit dwells inside of us, helping us see and savor Jesus because that's what God is like. That's what God is like. The spirit helps us see Jesus that we might have fellowship with him. And then we see God's grace at work in our church. Like, oh, that's like Christ. I love that. Oh, yes, yes. He brings us together that we have eternal life now. Jesus says in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Do you see that Jesus doesn't want us just forgiven? He wants us. Rejoice in your salvation because it brings eternal fellowship with the God who loves you. And as I say, what? He likes you. He's not sorry he saved you. He's not angry when you come in repentance. He's not upset when you're downcast looking for fresh joy. As we learned a few weeks ago in Zephaniah 3, he rejoices over you with singing. God rejoices over your salvation. Will you join him? Beloved, let's join the host of heaven. Let's rejoice in our salvation because it's initiated by God. It's motivated by the love of God. It's given as a gift from God. It's purchased by the Son of God. It's received by faith in God. And it brings you into eternal fellowship with God. Rejoice. Join the angels. Join God. Rejoice. Oh, my non-Christian friend, will you receive this offer of salvation today?